And as much as we want to pretend it didn't happen and bury it, you can't unring the bell. You can't unring mm-hmm. donor conception. You can't pretend it didn't happen. It did. It literally created your child. Hello and a heartfelt welcome to all our listeners as we embark on season four of the Family Twist podcast. I'm Kendall Austin Stulst, and my life story is a tapestry of unexpected turns from being adopted as an infant to losing my adoptive parents by the time I was 17, and then in a twist of fate, finding my birth family through the magic of DNA testing in 2017. And I'm Corey Stolz, Kendall's partner on this life adventure. When we uncovered his paternal birth family's roots on the East Coast, I knew our next chapter was calling us there to mend the missing pieces of Kendall's heart with the love of newfound relatives. Our podcast began as a single thread, a narrative of my own, but it is woven into a vibrant quilt of stories celebrating the complexities of DNA surprises, adoption, donor conception, NPEs, surrogacy, and the myriad ways families come together. Together, we've been welcomed into an incredible community with each guest sharing their own family twist. And through it all, we found strength in each other. Thank you for letting us share our passion and these remarkable stories with you. The bonds we formed with you, our listeners, and the stories you've shared have only deepened our commitment to this journey. Family Twist isn't just a podcast. It's a celebration of the unexpected ties that bind us all. Thank you for joining us on this fantastic ride. Today's episode takes us into the life of Laura High, a stand-up comedian with a twist. She's donor-conceived. Laura's journey gives us an inside look at the complexities and emotional layers within the donor conception community. Her story is not just personal, it also highlights the broader issues in the fertility industry, including the need for better regulation and transparency. In this episode, we delve into Laura's unique approach to advocacy through comedy. It's a powerful blend of humor and hard-hitting truths that challenges our understanding of the fertility industry. The gaps and inconsistencies in donor conception practices, as Laura reveals them, are both enlightening and alarming. Let's listen to what Laura has to share about navigating her identity and advocating for change. We're diving into a conversation that's not only about comedy, but about personal discovery, influence, and the power of laughter in the face of adversity. Laura's connection with icons like Gilda Radner and her perspective on comedy as a tool for advocacy are something we can't wait to explore. Well, we're super jazzed because today, this is the first time we've had a stand-up comedian on the podcast. Laura, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled because comedy is one of my passions, and I'm looking at your lovely gallery behind you, and I see the Steve Martin and drag and Gilda, and it's just... Yes. Gilda was my first favorite. So my mom's an event coordinator, and she helped plan the opening for like the first Gilda's house in Westchester. And it was like this huge event. And so I was still at like, I think I was like still like eight or nine. So I was still coming with her everywhere. And the Gilda's house had this like kind of like playroom for kids. And they just had like the best of Gilda Radner playing all the time. So she sat me in there to like get my homework done while she did her meeting. And it was like two hours later and I was an eight-year-old suddenly doing perfect Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana impression. (laughs) (laughs) And I I became obsessed obsessed with Gilda Radner. I was like, who the heck? Oh, am I allowed to curse on here? 
Oh, yeah. Sure. I was like, who the (laughs) fuck is this person and why has she been kept from me my whole life? Your long life at that point. Yeah, I just became this weirdo (laughs) kid obsessed with Gilda Radner. But yeah, my husband and I, we collect old like comedy LPs. So we've got, yeah, we've got like a bunch of the old ones around here. We've got, you know, Carlin and everything. Yeah. But I had just literally yesterday had my very first show at Comedy Cellar. Oh, very oh, cool. Awesome. Yes. Congratulations. Awesome. I mean, very that's nice. that is a big accomplishment, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Even though like yeah. I've headlined like across the United States, I think like that was the first time where I was like, I feel like a comedian for the very first time. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, no. All right. I f- officially wow. feel like one. Kudos. Wow. Kudos. Because I mean, it is a tough, tough gig. I, I do it from the sidelines. I, I don't perform, so I just love talking to comedians. My first two books have been about comedy with comedians, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a tough, tough gig. So kudos to you for doing it. It's a tough gig at times, but when it's good, there's nothing like it. Yeah. When yeah. it's good, it, it's, it's great. Like, it, you just can't beat it. <laughs> so fun. You mentioned Carlin. I was actually able to interview him in the back of a limo. Oh, wow. And that was like, you know, I can control myself when I'm around famous people, you know, yeah. <laughs> but that was tough because it was just like, oh my God, that's, that's Carlin. That's the king. That's the king sitting right there, two feet from me. Yeah. I don't want to give away names, but last night, you know, I'm meeting everybody and there were like two A-listers that they were just like, oh hey, my name is and I'm just like No yeah. My name is, yeah. As if you needed to be introduced. <laughs> and I'm just like trying really hard to keep it cold, like, hi, my name is Laura. And I'm like, but I also like I'm like big fan right? uh, yeah. trying to like play yeah. it off really cool and like yeah. play it just be like stuff. <laughs> major influence on the comedy movement like oh my god okay it's everything's right. fine we're just gonna be cool about it yeah let's not let everybody know what a giant dork you are laura <laughs> <laughs> well I-, I know you were at a protest recently can yes. you talk just a little bit about your approach to going to these type of protests before we even tell people what the protest was about. (laughs) Sure. I mean, I'm uh, obviously, you know, I'm very heavily influenced by comedy and by like Carlin. Robin Williams was kind of the first stand up comic who I just was like, oh, my. Like he was Robin Williams live at the Met was the first special I ever watched. And Mm. I love Love The Daily Show, loved Colbert Report last week tonight. Anytime like a comedian has ever used their comedy to shed light in dark situations, I've always considered that to just be like pure magic. Using comedy to explain hard, complex situations in a way that like it, it's so much easier to digest. It's so much more consumable. And it also just it kind of hits you emotionally in different places. And I always found that form of education and advocacy to be just incredible to me. And it was always very highly influential. And so for me, that's just how I would say I was really, it it really like sort of like put me on a trajectory was watching these comedians. And Mm. so for me, that has really heavily influenced a lot of what I do right now and what I do online and what I continue to do, especially for the the protest that I organized. And it was the first protest of its kind. And of course, I wanted to put my own like little, I had to sort of do a tongue in cheek comedic nod. Can I say like what the protest was for? Yeah, sure. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. So this was the very first protest for donor conceived rights. And I showed up with a custom made costume of me in a sperm cup. 
As you should. And I had a sperm fascinator on <laughs> as well. And I've been known to like run around in a sperm costume interviewing people. When I was helping the fertility fraud advocates, like when they were first like presenting the federal fertility fraud legislation, I was there to support, help lobby, and to really try and gain traction for it. I put on my sperm costume in the Raymore building, which is like where all the congressmen have all their offices and stuff. And so I'm interviewing all of these like fertility fraud advocates in the sperm costume in the Raymore building. And like, I'm of course also filming like B-roll. So I'm filming of me doing like parkour in the sperm costume in the Raymore building. And like, of course, like all like the congressman's aides are watching me like, what the fuck? And the amount I would pay if the security team from the Raymore building hears this, I will pay you an ungodly amount of money for that security footage. I want that so much to just see that. So that's yes. So I would say my comedy has definitely influenced my advocacy as a donor conceived person, someone conceived with sperm donation, as I try and shed light on the fertility industry and how absolutely unregulated and how unethical it is. I have found that people are more apt to listen to you if you make them laugh. Sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is an issue that Kendall and I did not know much about before we started doing this podcast. And we are hardcore allies now because it's oh, like, thank you. you know, it's yes, true. oh, absolutely. It's, it's like, it's unbelievable, really. And, really you know, is. we've had some wonderful guests and just the stories that they told. Well, I know that Dylan was at your protest. I adore Dylan. What a yeah. what a good guy he is. Oh, my gosh. D- Dylan's the best. I'm so grateful cool. that we have him as an ally. And he has become such a, a staple in the community. I'm just I'm so grateful that we have his voice because the fact that it's not just donor conceived people. We also have donors and recipient parents who are like so ingrained in the advocacy as well. Is mm-hmm. like we need that. Because as much as I firmly believe that this advocacy needs to be donor-conceived led, we cannot get the work done without donors and recipient parents. We need their stories, their advocacy, and their support as well because the fertility industry harms all of us. It harms our three parties. And the way that we collect evidence in order to support the regulations, we need the stories from all of our perspectives because what Dylan was told, what his recipient parents were told, what those donor-conceived children are going to deal with, All three of their perspectives are so needed to be able to make real advocacy and to really be able to understand what everybody was told in a very, I would say, succinct way instead of this like game of telephone where it's just like donor conceived Mm -hmm. people like we're comparing DNA records trying to go like, what the fuck happened? Who was told what? What were your parents told? What was the? It needs to be everybody. And so the fact that we've got Dylan is fabulous. Yes. And you mentioned the parents. We had a guest on just a couple of weeks ago, and she's definitely an ally. But at the time, she was so desperate to, to you know, have a child that she was like, you know, just everything like glossed over, like didn't ask the questions and stuff because it's like, okay, so I, I get to have a baby. Great. Right. Let's do it. I really feel for parents like that. I get a lot of parents who I would say are very deep within that, like kind of infertility trauma or very deep in that desperation, I really feel for them. I really, really do. And I get it. And I understand. And I talk to them a lot because like years later, months later, they are in my DMs and they're going like, I feel so guilty. What have I done? Oh my God, I've hurt my child. What Mm -hmm. can I do? And I always tell them, I'm like, you know, one, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're here now. Shit happens. And I always, always tell them, I'm like, you have to remember that the fertility industry has their script down packed. 
They they mm-hmm. know exactly what to say. They've been lying for decades. They know exactly how to manipulate your trauma and your desperation. I get it. They failed you by not educating you. And yes, it would have been great if like you had received maybe like some emotional support before the process that would have like helped you find that education beforehand. Absolutely. But everyone makes mistakes. But what matters to me personally more is what do you do when you're faced with that mistake? That is where your Mm -hmm. character really shines. And the fact that you're coming to me, the fact that you're asking me for advice and help says everything to me that I need to know. That this is like you are willing to reroute and change and stand up. That to me is like a 10 out of 10. And I will do whatever I can to help those recipient parents out so that they can move forward feeling confident and have the tools that they need to support their donor conceived child and support themselves. Do you know what your mother was told? You know, what stories, lies, education she was or wasn't given? (laughs) I love telling this story so much. Okay. Anyone who's been listening to me for a long time knows this story very well. And it's literally like my favorite thing to tell. So I was made. I was made. I was not conceived. I was made like a Toyota in 1987 (laughs) in New York City. So my parents were actively going through fertility treatments for three years. And both of my parents had fertility issues. My mom's could be fixed. My dad's couldn't. And it was, there was nothing. There was no resources. There was literally, there was nothing. There was not a single shred. My mom, even when I talked to her, she's like, we didn't even think about like health history. Like that just wasn't even something in the 80s we even considered Mm -hmm. was like genetics. She was like, and now she feels like really embarrassed. Like she, but she was like, that just was not spoken of at least for, I would say, the general public. But she was just like, it it just wasn't. And they started seeing this doctor. And they were his first patients. Wow. And just opened up this clinic. So they were also the first patients at this clinic. So I was the very first creation of this clinic of this doctor. Wow. And they basically, they started pumping my mom filled with fertility drugs. She had three surgeries. And finally, she had the full reconstruction. She had that finally did the trick. But they had done lots of sperm donations up until that point. Like they had tried many, many. Like when I asked her, I was like, how many times did you all try donor conception? And she was like, I don't know, somewhere in the double digits. And it just nothing worked. And then they did the reconstruction. Now, at this point, my mom had been on hormone therapy for three years, just had reconstruction. I cannot even begin to imagine the pain this woman was in because like a lot of the drugs were so experimental. Like it was it was rough. And I, just, I you know, totally understand. One of the things, though, that the clinic told my parents, though, and this was not why they picked the clinic or anything. This just seemed very normal at the time was my parents were not allowed to pick their donor. That was normal. Like, I don't have a medical history. Mm -hmm. I don't have a donor profile. I don't have a donor number. No one had that when I was born. Like, no one did. Very, very rare. And so the clinic said that we match the donors up with the dads as best as possible. Again, very standard. Between hair color, eye color, ethnicity. But the clinic said that the number one thing that we match before anything else is religion. Oh, what? Wow. I I know. I know because, you know, religion really matters to the guys jacking off in cups for cash. And there's such a difference between, you know, that Lutheran and that Protestant or Catholic sperm. Like, really matters. Exactly, Um, yeah. Especially that guilty Catholic sperm, you know. (laughs) I mean, that Catholic sperm is really good on its knees, but, you know. (laughs) 
Oh. <laughs> Wow. I mean, that's that's the first time we've heard anything like that yeah. before. That's that's wild. Yeah. He, he, the 80s, man. It's a wild time. Right. Yeah. So that was always what they were told. And they were told, like, it's an Ivy League doctor. Everything's fine. It'll match my dad. Now, my dad, Irish, Scottish, and Catholic. Okay. So that was always, like, Irish, Scottish, Catholic. Got it. Okay, cool. So my mom is now right after her reconstruction, and she's about to ovulate on a holiday weekend specifically she's about and this is important to know she's about to ovulate on the jewish new year so the clinic was closed and he was like sorry we'll just wait for the next ovulation and my mom's again in so much pain she's like is there any way we can open the clinic back up is there something that we can do and the doctor in his infinite wisdom in all of the ideas he could have come up with came up with this idea he said don't worry about it i'll get the sperm to be dropped off at a hotel concierge you go pick it up and inseminate it with your husband this is insanity. Yeah. Insanity. <laughs> it's insane because this was fresh sperm. This wasn't frozen. Right. This right. was fresh. So I'm now- like picturing. I don't know if you saw that movie. I think it's Forget Paris with Billy Crystal, where he's like running around with <laughs> with the sperm trying to get. To, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I'll have to check it Crazy. out. I actually don't know it. Yeah. (laughs) But my mom went to this hotel building and waited, picked up the the sperm. And she's like, it was like this little tube. And she put it like in in between like her pants and her skin because it has to be kept warm. Warm. It has to be at a certain temperature. So she kept it warm. And then she tries so hard to make it nice for me. And she's like, and I whisked (laughs) off to your father's office. And that's where you were made. And I'm like, wait, wait the fuck second. The clinic was closed because it was a holiday weekend. But dad couldn't take a fucking day off. <laughs> Dad could Jewish holiday and your father's Jewish, but still, come on, but Dad. Well, and it was just like, really, we couldn't have waited to get home to do this. No, I had to be like, you know, Mom put her legs up on Dad's desk. Like it was just like I just I sort of like imagine my mom's like you know legs up, and he's like you know all right, honey, like get, I have to finish this spreadsheet. Just go do your thing. He didn't have one of those offices where it was like all glass windows or anything, did he? <laughs> you mean the walls, interior, right, in- yes, the wall, interior yeah. walls? Oh I, I mean, my, my dad was in advertising, so he always talks about like, you know, he had a bar in his office yeah. and everything. So it was like, you know, the amount of sperm that I'm sure was all over that freaking office building. <laughs> so it really wasn't changing that much. It was just a different receptacle. But yes, oh and that goodness. was how I was conceived. So in terms of like going back to your initial question of what was my mom told? So the big thing was the sperm donor that was supposed to be used was supposed to match my dad. And the clinic saying the most important thing was religion. My dad is Scottish and Irish and Catholic. We took a DNA test when I was 25, 26. My donor is 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. I am 50% Ashkenazi Jewish. (laughs) My mom, she took a DNA test along with me, does not have like even 1% of Ashkenazi. So it's all for my donor. So that was one that was completely different ancestry heritage than my father. Also, they were like, oh, no, 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 perfectly healthy, everything like that. No, I I absolutely have had medical problems. The donor conceived siblings I have found so far have had medical problems as well. It all seems Mm. to be on the donor side. So there's just been lies after lies after lies being told. And I even called the doctor when I was 19 because I just was curious and I wanted to understand what my medical history was. And I wanted to see if there was a chance he would give me his number. And I called him and I was like, 
you know, can you give me any kind of information? And he was like, well, your donor came from a bank that was filled with like residents and doctors that has now since burnt to the ground. So even if I could give you the name, which I couldn't, it's all ashes anyway. But I can guarantee you perfectly healthy, nothing to worry about. Hmm. Wow. What's up with these places burning to the ground? It seems like that's a pretty common thing we're hearing about. <laughs> yes. No, it's actually, it's very common with both donor-conceived people and adoptees, like uh, adoption agencies and banks and clinics just apparently burn to the ground. Like there is an arsonist going mm-hmm. around, taking down all of our medical history. I don't know what vendetta this guy has, but ooh, <laughs> he needs to be stopped. But yeah, uh-huh. no, you ask 10 donor-conceived people what happened to your paperwork, five of them are going to tell you gone in a fire or a flood. Flood's another big one we get. Mm, Yeah. I I forget who I talked to, but there was a donor conceived person. I think like they were in like Michigan or something. And they were like, yeah, apparently it was taken out in a flood. And I'm like, by where? Yeah, exactly. Right. What? And she was like, yeah, apparently it was a flood. I'm like, how? You need to explain what flood this is. The great Michigan flood. I don't understand. Yes. (laughs) Missed the history books. I'm thinking locusts <laughs> are going to be number three. Oh, no. Uh, we haven't heard locusts yet, but I would not be surprised if locust is, is now going to be one that we get. Oh, I geez. think there's been like fires in Australia as well, like bushfires and stuff has been has mm-hmm. taken it out. A big one for our community was Katrina. When Katrina mm-hmm. hit, that apparently took out all medical records for like, you know, clinics that were located in California. Apparently, they right. kept all their records <laughs> in New Orleans. So, right. yeah, they used Katrina, the major wow. natural disaster that caused so much death and destroyed homes. The fertility industry was like, haha, an opportunity. Wow. Oof. Yikes. It just, yeah. It's atrocious. So have you gotten any inklings or any other clues as to who the donor is? Like, has he popped up on Oh, I totally know who he is. Uh, Oh, okay. I was connected to his first cousin on Ancestry. So, and between her and I, we figured out who it is. And so I I know him. I've seen his photo. I totally Facebook stalked him. And yeah, no, he, and he completely has refused contact. I've sent him a letter and an email, nothing. One of my donor conceived siblings has also emailed him, nothing. (laughs) I also recently got connected to his brother, sent his brother an email, nothing. (laughs) His brother was on a different DNA site. So I sent him a letter, an email through there and just nothing. Wow. Hmm. Mm -mm -mm. What do you know about him? So I do know who the dude is. My donor is a OBGYN Rabbi Moyle. Hmm. Okay. Wow. All right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So definitely does not exactly. I mean, you know, both my dad and my donor have brown hair. Like that's about <laughs> it. That's the commonality. They got brown hair. How many siblings have you connected with? So far, I officially, like, so my donor has two raised children, and then so far, I'm one of five donor-conceived siblings, but we know that there's no way there's just five of us. Mm. He donated for at least six years. Oh, okay. Wow. We know at least minimum. We know he started in 1982. I'm so far the youngest. We have no idea when he stopped. And he was a medical student and then an OBGYN, so we know there's not just six of us. So we're just kind of waiting, mm-hmm. but it's very common. So I've not spoken to all of my siblings because some of them just don't want contact, which I totally understand. But what's happened is it's very common for people who were born in my generation and older to have never been told that they were donor conceived. Like so far out of my pod, I'm the only one who was told. And 
that creates a lot of problems because you have a lot of people just taking 23andMe Ancestry for fun and then find out, oopsie, I'm donor conceived. And it's very traumatic. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, I don't know what to fucking do. And it can be overwhelming. And a lot of people tend to just go like, I don't want to touch this. So I'm giving those siblings of mine time. But also uh, the bulk of my siblings may have most likely have no idea they're donor conceived and may never know. And so for them, they're like, why would I take a DNA test? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know. Not everybody's doing it, but more and more people are doing it every day. So, yeah, I mean, th- those numbers are definitely going to grow. How did your parents tell you? So <laughs> I was 14 and my parents for the age bracket that I'm in, they were very, very progressive. So my parents knew they were always going to tell me, which is so rare for my age. And it's like such a gift. They, when I was born and they, you know, we started seeing my pediatrician, my pediatrician was like, I swear, fabulous. And she was like, you know, it was always a conversation between my parents and her and my pediatrician in the 80s. This was her instinct. And I'm like, I adore her. She looked at my dad and was like, you guys are going to tell her that she's donor conceived and looked at my dad and was like, and you're going to be the one to tell her. Because when you guys tell her this, she's going to be insecure that you don't love her. She's going to be insecure. Mm-hmm. You have to be the one to tell her because that's going to make it okay. Which I'm like, how, girl, how did you yeah. pull that out of nowhere? <laughs> like, there, right. there's no research. How the heck did you just, like, right. pull that out of the air and go, like, this is the right thing to do? Like, way to go. Her, Dr. Mary. Her name is Dr. Mary. If she is still in practice, like, oh, my God, best best pediatrician I could have asked for and like such Mm. an advocate for me. So it was my dad who told me I was 14 years old and we were driving home and telling me in the car is such a dad thing to do. And because like, you don't have to look at your kid. Like we can like, you know, (laughs) it's, it's emotional connection to an extent. And so he's just looking forward. He can control how long, how short the conversation is. If he wants to take the long way or the short way, or if he wants to speed really fast. And he just kind of like (laughs) looks forward and he was like, Laura, do you know how babies are made? And I'm like, Dad, and I'm I'm already my comic brain is starting to like click in at that point, and I just I'm like, Yeah, Dad, I'm 14. I've seen Skinamax. (laughs) (laughs) And then of course he like popped right back, and he was like, Okay, well, wasn't how you were made, and then kind of Uh went into how you know he was like, Do you know what sperm donation is? And I'm like, Yeah, and he was like. Okay, well, because at that point, I knew my parents had issues conceiving. And he was like, so, you know, your mom and I had issues conceiving. And, he, and I was like, yeah. And he's like, so this is why. So we used a sperm donor. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And I'm like, yeah. Okay. And it was this moment of it. The best way it was like, I can always explain it was it felt like I could see the matrix Everything made sense. I was like, it gave me way too much confidence because of how validating it is because I was just like, I fucking knew something was up. It's like, I was like, I was like, I was adopted. Was I switched at birth? Like, why does everything, why does something like I could smell something was weird, but I looked just like my mother. I look just mm-hmm. like her. So I was like, I had no idea. And this just, I, I, it just was this like, boom moment where I, Yeah, it was like kind of like that Alfred Hitchcock Jaws moment where you zoom in and you roll the camera back at the same time. It was like one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And I just was like, "Ah." so yeah, it was 14. And and then I just I sat with it for a very long time. I really just was like, all right, that's cool. 
It just kind of sat there for a very long time. Did your father have any of those feelings about that he worried that you wouldn't feel connected to him or something like, you know, we hear these stories of people whose parents feel that way. I'm going to say he would say no. He would say no. But I think if, you know, maybe if I get a few drinks in him, then maybe he'd be like, yeah, I was really scared. She wasn't going to love me anymore. She was going to look at me really different. I was going to look. Yeah, I'm sure he would say that. But I would need to get him a lot of gin, Mm -hmm. a lot of gin first before, before he would admit that. We're pausing here, but Laura's story is far from over. In part two, we'll explore more of her advocacy work and the impact of her journey on her personal life. Laura's experience underscores the emotional complexities of being donor conceived and raises critical questions about the ethics of the fertility industry. Laura's candid discussion about her discovery, advocacy, and the humorous way she brings light to these serious issues is both inspiring and thought-provoking. We thank Laura for her honesty and for shedding light on the critical need for legal reforms and ethical practices in the fertility industry. What an incredible first part of our conversation with Laura High. Her stories, her passion for comedy, and her insights into using humor as a bridge in difficult conversations are truly remarkable. It's not just about making people laugh. It's about making them think and feel. You can listen to part two with Laura right now.